Would you turn to Joshua chapter 14 this morning? We get to an example today of a man who was a silver saint in the Old Testament. An 85-year-old guy by the name of Caleb. And he becomes an example for us. Whether we're young'uns or old'uns, we can learn from Caleb. You know, growing old scares an awful lot of people. When I was younger, you couldn't trust anybody over 30. That was the motto. And now people over 30 wonder if they can trust anybody under 30. But people often have this phobia of what it's like to get old, and yet age is oftentimes an attitude. I've had people in their 20s think, oh, I'm getting so old. Well, I found, for your enjoyment, 15 ways you know when you're getting old. So if any of these things apply, you know you're getting old. You feel like the morning after, even though you didn't go anywhere the night before. All of the names in your little black book end in MD. Your children begin to look middle-aged. You know all the answers, but no one's asking you the questions. You look forward to a dull evening. You help a little gray-haired lady across the street, and she's your wife. You turn out the lights for economic rather than romantic reasons. You sit in a rocking chair, and you can't get it started. All of your dreams are reruns. Your knees buckle, your belt won't. You try to straighten the wrinkles in your socks, and you find that you're not wearing any. Your back goes out more than you do. Almost everything hurts, and what doesn't hurt doesn't work anymore. You sink your teeth into a juicy steak, and they stay there. And you burn the midnight oil until 9.30. On the very real serious side, with age, especially in the advanced years, comes oftentimes the feeling of uselessness. What good am I anymore? I'm over the hill. Or the feeling of guilt. If I only had a second chance, if I could only redo some of the things that I failed to do. And more than that comes, unfortunately, the feeling of hopelessness. They see the signs of age creeping upon them, and it's a despair and a hopelessness. And yet, we read about a guy in this chapter who is 85 years old, but you'd never know it unless he told us he was 85, and he does, because he doesn't have the I quit, I'm hopeless attitude. And he doesn't live in the glories of the past. He's not one of the, the good old days kind of a guy. He lives very much in the present and he looks forward to the future. And it makes old age look attractive 
If I can grow old and be like Caleb, bring it on. He's one of those kinds of guys. Now, if you are in the aged category today, and I was going to kind of take a poll here just to get the age group of our church, but again, people are afraid of that and could get embarrassed, so I won't do it. But if you are approaching that hill, I won't say over the hill, let's say you're approaching the hill, and you can relate to a guy that's this age, then I hope this will be an inspiration to you. If you are young, and predominantly this auditorium is packed full of the younger type, just remember that this is for you as well, because there will come a day, if the Lord tarries, where you will look at life from the other end. And I hope you'll never be able to say, oh, I wish I could do it all over again. I hope you'll have no regrets. Caleb had no regrets. And because we are young and we look to a time when we will be old, as David said, I once was young, now I am old, we have a target to shoot for, an example. And I am grateful that the Bible is chocked full of biographies. You know, of all the ways God could have written his book, he did it using examples of men and women. He didn't start off saying this is the theology of God. He talks about Abraham and all of these guys in a biographical sketch. And he does that for a very important reason. Because more people will follow your example more readily than your advice. And so we have an example here in Caleb this morning. Now he reminisces, first of all. He looks back on the old years and then he brings himself up to the present. In verse 6, the children of Judah came to Joshua in Gilgal. And Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, You know the word which the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, concerning you and me in Kadesh Barnea. I was forty years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And I brought back word to him as it was in my heart. Nevertheless, my brethren who went up with me made the heart of the people melt. But I wholly followed the Lord my God. So Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land where your foot has trodden shall be your inheritance and your children's forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. The day that this occurred on was a real special day. It was payday for the children of Israel. It was the time when the land apportionments would be divided and the tribes would get their special allotment. It's a day they'd been looking for for a long time. God promised them a land some 45 years ago. They finally made it. But it took them seven years once they crossed the Jordan to fight all of the battles and get to this point where they actually got their paychecks. And so they're chomping at the bit, waiting for Joshua to say, this tribe goes there, this tribe goes there. Judah is first in line because Judah was the first to march, the first in battle, so she's the first in line. And right before he's about to cast the lots and give away the land, people are pushed aside in the crowd and this 85-year-old man steps forward and demands a portion of land that Moses promised him years before a place called Hebron. And I can picture the scene. 
ready to divvy out the land, and this old man comes up and starts reminiscing. And all the younger folks who really didn't know him thought, who is this guy? Oh, maybe he's senile. You know, he's an old guy. Go ahead, let him talk. The most amazing thing is that Joshua gives him, toward the end, in verse 14 and 15, the land that he demanded. The man is Caleb. That's his name. His name means bold one or impetuous one. And he is true to his name. By the way, in Hebrew, Caleb also is an animal name for dog. This guy was a fighter. I guess if you have a name like dog, you'd be a fighter too. Sort of like a boy named Sue. You grow up kind of rigid. Caleb did. Caleb was a bold and impetuous kind of a guy who refused to retire. He always had battles on his mind. You couldn't put this guy in a retirement home if your life depended on it. Herbert Lockyer said he was the man who wanted the mountain. And indeed he did. Let's follow back through his history. You know, here he goes in verse 7 and says, I was 40 years old. And I can just hear all the younger people going, oh, no, here goes one of those stories. Remember what it was like growing up with your folks, kids? And your dad would say, no, I remember back in 19. You think, oh, I've heard this a million times. And here he goes reminiscing through his history. He says, I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And I brought back word to him as it was in my heart. Let's humor Caleb for a few minutes and jump back with him to that time in history that he's speaking of. It's a time when they were at the brink of the land, at the division between the desert and the land God promised. So go back a few chapters, a few books, to the book of Numbers, chapter 13. And let's look at that event in brief. Numbers, chapter 13 They are sent out, it's during the grape harvest, and they come back. And in Numbers 13, verse 25, it tells us they returned from spying out the land after 40 days. And so they departed and came back to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Then they told him and said, We went to the land where you sent us. It truly flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Um, nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell in the mountains. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the banks of the Jordan. Then Caleb, good old dog, quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We're not able to go up against the people. They are stronger than we are. 
And they gave the children of Israel a bad report, and the land which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw are men of great stature. There we saw the giants, the descendants of Anna came from the giants, and we were like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. Two proposals. One says, go for it. Joshua and Caleb brought that one. The second says, you know, it's a great place, but there's big dudes out there. I don't think we should go. What is interesting is that all 12 saw the same things. It wasn't as if Joshua and Caleb were inside drinking a Coke when the giants went by. They all saw the giants. They all saw the fortified cities. But the big difference is that 10 of them measured the problem, the giants, the fortified cities, against their own ability. Caleb, Joshua, measured their strength against God's strength. The ten spies who gave the bad report had big giants and a little God. Caleb and Joshua had little giants and a big God. That was the big difference. It was their perspective with the power of God in view. And Caleb, without blinking an eye, says, Ah, they're overgrown midgets. We don't even have to think about this one. Let's just go up at once and take the land. Let's go for it. But they got a bad report. Now, you know that panic spreads quickly. Unbelief and panic spreads much more quickly than belief and faith. Pessimism spreads much more quickly than optimism. And here they are, the children of Israel, at the brink of the land of promise, and they fail to go in. It says in verse 1 of chapter 14, Then all of the congregation lifted up their voices and cried. And the people wept all that night. And the children of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in the wilderness. Why has the Lord brought us to the land to fall by the sword that our wives and children should become victims. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? And so they said to one another, let's select a leader and go back to Egypt. They've been out in the desert just one year, and already they want to either die in the wilderness or hang out in the wilderness or go back to Egypt. You know why? Because Egypt, although there was bondage there, was a safe place. At least they got food there. At least there were paychecks every Friday. At least there was some dependability. They were saying, give me the old, stale, uneventful life. We want status quo. We don't want to risk. We want security. And Caleb and Joshua said, we're ready to go. I want a new adventure. God promised it, and we're going to go for it. Beware if you start losing your sense of adventure. Your willingness to take a risk and trust the Lord. It is a deadening thing to just want 
nothingness, status quo, don't rock the boat. That was not for Joshua, it was not for Caleb. Someone once said, it is a wretched taste to be satisfied with mediocrity when that which is excellent lies before us. They were willing to take the risk. It says in verse 5, Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh who were among them, who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and spoke to the congregation of the children of Israel. They said, the land we passed through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, then he'll bring us into this land to give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only don't rebel against the Lord, nor fear the people of the land, for they are our bread. We're just going to eat their lunch, he is saying. Their protection has departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Don't fear them. Now here, Caleb and Joshua look back, and they remember that there was a night a year ago that by the blood of the lamb on the lintels and running down the doorposts brought them out of Egypt. And God, by his power, opened up a sea, put a pillar of fire to guide them all that night, and has led them this far. And he's saying, God's got a good track record. He didn't bring us this far to kill us or to dump us. Let's go for it. And all the congregation, verse 10, said to stone them with stones. Now the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of meeting before all the children of Israel. People are people, and we have not changed that much. And when there is that decision between a risk or the wilderness, Egypt, status quo, even bondage. The great majority will take the status quo and even the bondage to a risk of faith in seeing what God has for them. Now, what did God think about all this? Well, turn the page if you need to and look down at verse 22. God says, Because all these men who have seen my glory and the signs which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have put me to the test now these ten times and have not listened to my voice, they certainly shall not see the land that I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who rejected me see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit in him and has followed me fully, I will bring him into the land where he went and his descendants shall inherit. Old Caleb, God says, is a different breed of person. He's got a different spirit. He's not like the crowd. He didn't care about the whims of the crowd and he didn't care what the crowd thinks about him. He's making a choice to follow me and he's bagging the rest. And he's going to enter the land because he's like his forefather, his ancestor Abraham, who wavered not at the promise of God through unbelief. And I'm going to give that land to him. And what happened? They had to wander 40 years. You know, I thought about that this week. The generation died. Moses survived. Joshua survived. And Caleb survived. And Caleb wandered through the wilderness with the unbelieving till they died, with the new generation till they went into the land, 
through all of the complaining, all of the murmuring, all of the death, all of the trials. And now we read about him in Joshua chapter 14, strong as ever. Still trusting the Lord, still following the Lord fully. You know, there's a real lesson in that. And that is developing good habits of righteousness early on in your Christian walk. Because like mercy, they'll follow you wherever you go. Learn to say yes to the right things. Learn to say no to the wrong things very early on. Establish good patterns and habits and decision making early on. Because they will map out for you the rest of your walk. Like Joseph. Joseph learned to say no to Potiphar's wife at the beginning when she tried to seduce him. And he said no day after day after day. And finally, when she tried to force himself upon him and almost rape him, he knew what to do. He had said no so many times it was a habit and he split, he streaked out of that house without his garments. You develop a habit early on. And then you go for it. Now back in Joshua, this man steps forward and he remembers a promise that God said. We read about it in verse 6. He said, you know the word which the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, concerning you and me, Josh, in Kadesh Barnea. In verse 9, Moses swore on that day, saying, surely the land where your foot has trodden shall be your inheritance and your children's forever because you have wholly followed the Lord, my God. You know, it's been 40 some years, 45 years that that promise was given by Moses. And this guy can quote it verbatim. Talk about the importance of knowing the promises of God. The importance really of scripture memory. A lot of people don't like to do that, but it is important. Nothing will transform your life and your thinking more than memorizing and meditating upon the Word of God. Because when you memorize the principles of Scripture, you've got them at your fingertips. When you need them in a situation, you don't have to go to the concordance. You pull it out. You got it. You spit it out. And he was able to do that. He said, here's the promise. And he didn't skip a beat. He memorized it and he was able to go for it. Now, That's why listening is so important. Be swift to listen. Slow to speak. Slow to become angry. Because when God is speaking through whatever means, in your quiet time, through a message, on the radio, ask Him, what do you have for me? It might be a lesson that you can't even use today. But you'll need it someday. And you'll need to know how to apply it. So memorize a little section of it. Commit it to your heart so that it's at your fingertips. It's at your disposal whenever you need it. All right. I don't know if any of us are going to make it to 85 or 90. But if we can end up like this guy, it'd be great, wouldn't it? He looks back and he says, I've been faithful. Moses made a promise. Let's keep it now. Not only does he reminisce, but he has got so much zeal and determination and life that he lives in the present and he's ready for more. In verse 11, he says, look at verse 10. 
Now, behold, the Lord has kept me alive, as he said, these 45 years. Ever since the Lord spoke this word to Moses while Israel wandered in the wilderness, and now, here I am this day, 85 years old. Happy birthday, Caleb. As yet, I am as strong this day as I was on the day that Moses sent me, just as my strength was then, so is my strength for war, both for going out and for coming in. I love that. This guy is ready for more stuff. I'm as strong today as I was 45 years ago. It's an 85-year-old man saying that. It's like those commercials where the guy has gone through his midlife and it's just beginning for him. He takes on a whole new challenge. You can make a commercial right out of Caleb right here. He's not 85 years old. He's 85 years young. And he's ready for more stuff. Someone once said, None is so old than when he has outlived enthusiasm. Caleb is still enthusiastic. A few years ago, there came a man to this city, came to our church, and some of you who were around will remember him. He was 95 years old about five years ago. Don't know if he's with the Lord or if he's still kicking. His name was George Simmons. Been a missionary, a preacher for years. And I took him to lunch one day, and as he was eating, the, the muscles in his mouth had deteriorated so that spittle would leak out the sides. And it wouldn't bother him. He'd say, you know, I'm 95 years old, and the plumbing leaks a little bit, but my legs don't know that I'm 95. My legs think I'm much younger and I'm still ready to go. Now, Caleb was 85, and I don't think there was a part of his body that knew he was 85. He refused to retire. He refused to cash it in. And notice that he wasn't ashamed of his age. He didn't say, now that I'm over 60... In the midst of everybody, I'm 85. There's something strange about the human race. When we're younger, we try to look and act older. And when we're older, we would love people to think that we're younger. In fact, it's a compliment when they say that we look younger than our age. Nobody's satisfied with their age. And I've also noticed how we monitor age. You know, at first, we go by weeks. Oh, he's 18 weeks old. Then we go by halves. He's two and a half. And you reach a point where you don't do that anymore. You say, he's in his 60s. You don't say he's 60 and a half in three weeks. He said, this day, I'm 85 years old. Wasn't ashamed of it. I want you to notice two things before we go on. He never lived in his past. He didn't stop by showing the home movies of his past. Now, 40 years ago, I remember when I did this and the Lord used me. He didn't stop there. He was not content in reveling in the glories of what happened way back when. For him, a relationship with God was always present tense. And you know, it's easy to look back and become satisfied with what happened so many years ago and how God used us. Not this guy. That was nonsense. To him, none of that was valid unless God was working present tense. He says, I'm ready for more. I'm 85, but I'm fit. Fit as a fiddle and ready to fight. 
many times denominations, not only denominations, Christian movements can often become so stale because they build a monument to a past event. There was a time in their history when there were the glories of the past. And they will point the congregations back to the revival in 18 so-and-so or 19 so-and-so when our people and our movement were so empowered by God. And we educate them on that and point to the peak of time. And yet oftentimes those movements can become deader than a doornail. Any movement. Those of us who are in the Jesus movement can look back to the Jesus movement at this great high altar of accomplishment. And God says, big deal. Are you still in this present state hungering after that revival? Being used by God? Or do you look back as somebody who would retire and say, oh, I've had my heyday. Mm, Not Caleb. He was ready to go. He used his past as a springboard, not a sofa. Second thing I want you to notice about him is how he viewed himself. In verse 11, he says, I am strong this day as I was on the day Moses sent me. Isn't that beautiful? He didn't say, I'm useless. Leave me alone. I'm tired. I don't want to do anything anymore. I'm washed up. I just want to relax. You guys owe me some benefits by this time. I need a free ride. He said, I'm ready to go, man. He viewed himself as useful, important, significant to the work of God, not as useless. He said, you see those hills? I'm going to get them. Giants? They're midgets. I'm ready to get them. What a beautiful view. There was an elderly woman who at the end of her life made this confession. She said, if I had to live my life over, I dare to make more mistakes next time. I'd relax. I'd limber up. I would be sillier than I have been on this trip. I would take fewer things seriously. I'd take more chances. I would climb more mountains. I'd swim more rivers. I would eat more ice cream and less beans. I'd perhaps have more actual troubles, but I'd have fewer imaginary ones. You see, I'm one of those people who live sensibly and sanely, hour after hour, day after day. Oh, I've had my moments. And if I had to do it over again, I'd have more of them. In fact, I try to do nothing else, just moments. One after the other, instead of living so many years ahead of time. I've been one of those persons who never goes anywhere without a thermometer, hot water bottle, raincoat, and parachute. If I had to do it again, I would travel lighter than I have. If I had my life to live over, I'd start barefoot earlier in the spring and stay that way later in the fall. I would go to more dinners, I'd ride more merry-go-rounds, I'd pick more daisies. Boy, I want to end my journey with no regrets knowing that I have been useful to the kingdom of God till the day I breathe my last. I want no regrets. I want to be able to say, as Paul said, I fought the fight. I've run the race. I kept the faith. Now there is a crown laid up for me. But I have no regrets. Now look at the next few verses. 
Not only is he ready for more, this guy goes out and gets them. This guy lives in the present and in the future. In verse 12, Now therefore, give me this mountain of which the Lord spoke in that day. For you heard in that day how the Anakim were there, and that the cities were great and fortified. It may be that the Lord will be with me, and I shall be able to drive them out as the Lord said. And Joshua blessed him and gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, as his inheritance. Hebron therefore became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, to this day, because he wholly followed the Lord God of Israel. And the name of Hebron, for formerly it was Kiriath Arba. Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim. And the land had rest from war. Look over in the next chapter at verse 13. Watch this 85-year-old guy cook. Verse 13, Now to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, he gave a portion among the children of Judah, according to the commandment of the Lord to Joshua, namely Kiriath Arba, which is Hebron. Verse 14, Caleb drove out the three sons of Anak from there, Shishai, Ahiman, and Talmai, the children of Anak. Look at that old guy go! He's 85 years old, chasing giants. This is a hazardous job for a younger fella and he's out there singing, I've only just begun. And he's killing them all. This guy's on a roll. He won't stop. You know, the Canaanites heard of the children of Israel 45 years ago. We, it's recorded. And they were scared of the children of Israel. It's recorded in the book of Joshua. Now, 45 years before, Caleb said, we can take these guys. Now he's back. You know, to the Canaanites, this is like a Jaws 2 movie. Just when you thought it was safe to go back out in the land, Caleb 2, he's back. And he drives them out. What's even more amazing, folks, is that he is the only guy who successfully drove out the Canaanites from the inheritance God gave to them. If you read the entire book of Joshua, over and over again you hear this sad phrase that says, and they were unable to drive them out. They were too strong for them. They had chariots of iron and they were unable or they could not drive them out. This guy did drive them out because he wholly followed the Lord. I dare say there are some enemies in our own lives. Certain sins, the old enemies like the Anakim, those giants that we've never gotten rid of, those things that we've never dealt with, and we like the children of Israel in anguish say, I've tried, but I was unable to drive them out. And here's Joshua, 85, says, give me them mountains. And he drives them out. Why? Why is his life so incredible, so amazing? It's that one phrase that we've read three times now in this section. He wholly followed the Lord. It is a phrase that is used six times of Caleb in the Bible, three times in the section we just read. He wholly followed the Lord. Which means, according to Kyle and Delich, 
he faithfully followed the Lord with perfect fidelity. You know what that means? That means Caleb hung straight and held on to the Lord and wouldn't swerve. Wouldn't swerve at all. Perfect fidelity. He didn't court any other lovers except God. He didn't care about the world and what the world had to offer. He was in love with God with perfect fidelity. He followed the Lord as God. Holy or wholeheartedly following the Lord. Now you and I are called to follow. Jesus Christ, when He met His disciples, what did He say to them? Follow Me. Period. They left their nets. They followed Jesus. How did Jesus call us to follow Him? Wholeheartedly. No different. He said, if anyone come after Me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow Me. Because if you want to follow God correctly, you have to follow Him wholly. Totally. Half service is no service. You follow the Lord wholly and you'll get it. You'll knock those giants out. As I examine what we have just read, there's a few things I want you to, to remember. Some characteristics. They're in your outline as empty blanks for you to fill in and meditate on. There are three characteristics of Caleb. Three characteristics of a person who totally, wholly follows God. And first of all, he had a spiritual and moral bravery. A spiritual and moral bravery. The rest of the children of Israel were sympathetic with the ten people who brought the bad report. They were pessimistic. They did not want to follow the Lord into the new land. They gave up. But there was a spiritual and moral bravery in Caleb. He was independent of the whims of other people. He could care less if the entire nation decided to disobey God. His faith was not banking upon somebody else. He didn't look to his leaders or to his peers to hold him up as far as a commitment with God. Now, it's good when you have that. We need that encouragement. But if all else fails, and if everyone falls, I'm going to stay committed to God. And he did for 40 years after everybody fell. Alexander the Great, when he was going out to battle, was told by one of his under-soldiers, as they were going out to fight the Persians, he said, Alexander... You need to be aware of what kind of a battle you're facing. The Persians are greater in number than the sands on the seashore. Alexander said, so? A butcher is never afraid of a whole flock of sheep. That was his determination. A butcher is never afraid of a whole flock of sheep. Caleb, nobody's listening to you. So what? I'm going to follow the Lord. A spiritual and moral bravery. Secondly, he spoke the truth without regard to pleasing men. He spoke the truth without regard to pleasing men. Look at verse 7. At the end, he says, I brought back word to him as it was in my heart. When Caleb came back from that inspection tour of the land, he brought back a report based on what he saw and what was in his heart. 
He didn't say something because Moses wanted to hear something. He didn't care about the people and what they'd say. He spoke the truth as it was the truth. And whether they liked it or Moses liked it, he could care less. He spoke the truth without regard to please men. Hey, haven't you been tempted to hide your convictions when they are unpopular convictions? Speak up against immorality, sins that you see around you, to take a real righteous stand. You're tempted to hide it because your convictions, believe me, in this day and age, if you have those convictions, are very unpopular. Joshua didn't care if people liked him or didn't like him. Charles Spurgeon said, I have one motto. I yield to none. I preach what I like, when I like, as I like. I yield to none. I speak the truth, and if nobody likes it, I don't care. Because like Paul said, if I'm going to go around pleasing men, I can't be the servant of God. Spiritual and moral bravery, speaking the truth without regard to please men, and third, he had a reckless abandonment to the will of God. A reckless abandonment to the will of God. Look back at verse 12. Give me this mountain which the Lord spoke in that day, for you heard how the Anakim are there. The cities are great and fortified. Now listen, it may be that the Lord will be with me. Isn't that great? You know, I'm going to go for it, and it really could be the Lord, you know. What do you mean it could be? Well, it may be that God's going to be with me, and I'm just going to wipe him out. He had an, a reckless abandonment to do the will of God. He didn't care about comfort. He cared about the battle. Remember Jonathan, the armor bearer of Jonathan? Both of them went out to battle one time against the Philistines. and Saul is camped, kind of sitting underneath a tree, hanging out. Jonathan takes his armor bearer and he says, you know what, we're not doing anything today. Let's go to the camp of the Philistines and maybe God will give the whole camp of the Philistines to us. We don't even have to go to battle. It may be that God will be with us. For what restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few? I remember I said, yeah, you got a good point. Let's go for it. A reckless abandonment to the will of God. Don't just be content with mediocrity. Don't just live your life. Spend your life for something that will outlast your life. I love what somebody said. Don't follow Wherever the path may lead, follow God where there is no path and leave a trail. Leave a trail. He wholly followed the Lord. I encourage you to make that your priority. Wholeheartedly follow the Lord. If you're young, do it. If you're older, do it. If you're really old, keep doing it. Keep doing it. To be able to say, I have fought the fight, I've run the race, and now there's laid up for me a crown. You know, it'd be great to come to the end of life. It'd be horrible, first of all, to say, well, I've made it. And I hope there's a crown. One person to his granddaughter said this. He wrote this out to her. He said, a common greeting of these days is, how are you? The stereotype reply is, fine, how are you? 
I frequently give this reply to my friends who would be dismayed and bored if I tried to tell them the truth. For the addition of this jalopy, which I call my body, is getting worse and worse. My friends recognize it and they make a mental note. Boy, he's slipping fast. No one comments on the obvious and the colossal lie. Colossal lie that it is. This jalopy is getting into bad condition. The steering gear is worn and wobbly. I have to use a cane to keep it from running off the road. The headlights are so dim that they show up only about a half or a third as much as they used to. The horn is a mere squawk. I only get about a tenth of the speed out of it that I did a few years ago. As for climbing hills or gentler slopes, whew, it's clear that there's going to have to be a change, that this jalopy is going to have to be junked one of these days. But the real person who lives inside this jalopy is a different story. God is much more real and His truth shines more brightly. The companionship of Christ is more constant through His Holy Spirit and He holds out a hope for a new model after this old jalopy's junked. This, I think, is what Paul had in mind when he spoke of the reward of God, the righteous judge, would give on that day. I think this is also what he was writing to the Philippians about his body when he was in a hazardous state and said, I rejoice and I intend to rejoice. I hope all of you will rejoice with me. Paul labeled his new model spiritual and eternal as compared with our present model physical decaying. This then is the lively hope that I can have I know I don't deserve a new model. And if God, the righteous judge, determines that I should not have it, that's all right too. In any case, the righteous judge is his middle name, sandwiched between his first name and his last name, both of which are love. So, I am fine, thank you. How are you? We all have a life to live. We're all going to look back on it one day. Keith Green wrote a song. He said, make my life a prayer to you. I want to do what you want me to. No empty words, no white lies, no token prayers, no compromise. That was Caleb. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that every single day we live brings us closer to your throne room. We can't wait to see you. It's going to be awesome. Until that time, I pray that we won't be content to just look back at the glories of the past, if there are any, but to experience the vital life of our Savior every single day, to be wholly, wholeheartedly devoted to You, becoming brave, courageous spiritually, speaking the truth, and having that total abandonment to do Your will, to go for it, to get the giants, to take the land. Father, I also want to pray for those in this room who don't know the freshness, the beauty of walking with Jesus. Religion has blinded their eyes. Their own righteousness has blinded their eyes. 
I pray that you would convict of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, as you said your Spirit would. And this morning, bring all of those who need to know you to commit themselves to you, to be born again, to that place where they surrender all. In Jesus' name.